Find us online at themusicsnobs.com. Please, we invite you to review and... Uh, faster, um, Arthur, faster, faster. Come on, come on, let's go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Say dance on the stage, get your move on. Got a way that you can go get this. Welcome to the B side. Got a way that you smile and we left for a while. The music snobs. This is the Music Snobs Podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined by my co hosts, Scoop, Isaac, and Jahan. We are gathered here today well well to discuss all right now music mm. and the lord mm. welcome we are going to get down to the answer of the question does god make the music better now we're all going to hell <laughs> your fault, Arthur. Well, I, heard, I heard the music's pretty your good fault. down there, though, so it's all good. How's it, how's it my fault? Yeah, they got. Hey, to Scoop's point, there gotta be a lot. It's gotta be good because there's a lot of motherfuckers. Yeah, right, right, right. Play. The music down there is pretty dope, you know. So yeah, we're all good. We want to know. I mean, is spiritual is spirituality, the church, the Black Christian Church, which has served seemingly as the incubator. Of so much vocal and, inter, uh, and instrumental talent, I mean, an entire generation. You know, gospel music, sure, but this is permeated into nearly all forms of music, besides just soul music, R&B, and we can kind of get into the distinctions of those two. Um, but funk, even now, in, in a more, uh, I guess, really modern, up-to-date context, hip hop, a lot of rappers, a lot of Chicago rappers have integrated choirs Hammond B organs I don't think any one of us could could deny that that the church has been the lifeblood of so many popular artists and uh, and icons but what I do want to do is kind of lay a little groundwork here uh, because the topic is religion and spirituality we are focusing on black music but I just want to kind of go around the room. Is, are, do you think we're just talking about this 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 permeation on black music, or is there an equivalent in other Western music uh, forms? Well, right off the top, I can think of two. There are probably a couple more, but right off the top, I can think of two: Led Zeppelin and Steely Dan. Right, and I, I agree with Arthur as far as Led Zeppelin is concerned. And for some reason, I feel the same way at times about the Rolling Stones. You know, there seems, there, there seems to be a feel of some type of spirituality in their mm-hmm. music, and they're both rock bands. But I think from my point, to answer your question, for me, it's the average white band and Tina Marie. Mm-hmm. But Tina, is she, I mean, you know, she's black enough, <laughs> right? Tina White. Tina, Tina White. Tina White. She honorary. Tina White. Is she honorary? <laughs> she honorary, but she, she white. You know, hey, you got to, you know. Now, now, for my part, I do think there's a distinction um, that we're going to get into in the discussion, but I don't think that that black music is the uh, the only recipient of um, divine inspiration. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have classical works like Handel's Messiah, for example, uh, the choral works of Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that if you're talking about, you have to say 
to it's i mean to properly answer that question i think you have to put a modern spin on it like does it just apply to modern because really you could go back before recorded music you know you could go back centuries or thousands of years when you know because religion has always been here whether it's you know not the major religions that we talk about now but some form of religion has always been prevalent with you know any community of people so mm-hmm. and then music whatever music they derive from that you know or, or you know or represented their community you know ultimately has something to do with their their belief system so I, mm-hmm. I don't think that you know you can in a holistic sense you can never say well no this just applies to black music but if you're talking about in the modern sense modern say over the last couple hundred years maybe even then i think you can you can make a case for that but even then we're saying okay if you look at some forms of what we regard what we may regard as non-black music they may still have you know derived some of their essence or some of their elements from black music so then mm-hmm. you know some of that may have carried over into other forms so i think it's hard to i think it's hard to delineate do we need to clarify this a little bit though are we talking strictly about religious music are we just talking about gospel or no. are we talking about ways in which spirituality however direct or however indirect has Mm -hmm. basically permeated black music and and in terms of what you're talking about right now other forms of music as well is which one are we talking about well we're talking about the the latter latter, but specifically how how it's influenced how it it manifests I, i think that music through the ages has been um uh a, a perfect or near perfect conduit for human beings to express um, their connection to the divine. Are we are we talking more about cultural experience than religion? Like, if you take, for example, I mean, Scoop, I know you can talk about this. If you take the New Orleans homegoing processions, like the funeral processions, mm-hmm. which turn into like a musical celebration of that person's life, uh, not just for the family, but for the whole kind of neighborhood. I mean, yeah, that's that's a big part of, of non-secular music as, as a role it plays in New Orleans. But a lot of times, uh, Jahan, that's specific to the culture and the lifestyle of the people in New Orleans. And if you spend any time in New Orleans, you know New Orleans is unlike any other place in America. It is its own country, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. They have, you know, their own way of living they have their own belief systems they have their own tradition heritages um and they're derived from other places in the world and from a i hate to use the word no pun intended but a gumbo of other Mm -hmm. cultures Mm -hmm. and 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 traditions Mm -hmm. throughout the world that have incorporated themselves down into new orleans so that they built their own process of speaking to one another through music and a lot of times they found they have found a way to celebrate death through music that is connected to their spirituality. Um, and it, it's, almost, it's almost like they have an unspoken belief in reincarnation because once somebody has passed away and they've passed over, they've begun their second life. And this mm-hmm. is a celebration of you entering that phase. So there are parades. And, there, and the parade you know, itself is even called Second Line, right? Yes, the, yep, the parades are called Second Lines. Um, and, you you know, most times you dress in non, as, as most, you know, religious services do when you're dealing with somebody's death here in America, you wear black. In New Orleans, you wear mm-hmm. anything but black. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you mm-hmm. celebrate, you play music, you cook food. It's, it's what we have here in America when it comes to death, um, especially in black, in, in black culture, we have repasses. And repasses are those celebrations where after the funeral, after the burial, 
after the services, we all commiserate, get together as family and friends, and that's when we celebrate around food, around music, around stories about the life of that of someone who just passed. New Orleans almost bypasses everything else and gets to that point. The whole celebration is almost like a repast. But that's the way they view and celebrate life, especially in black culture, dealing with New Orleans. And it is rooted in music. It is rooted in live music, it, especially at the beginning when you're dealing with the parades, because that's where the mm -hmm. bands come out. And, and, and they play mm -hmm. second line music and they play celebration music and they play traditional New Orleans and French and Creole mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. you know, to celebrate your second life. So, you know, New Orleans is a whole nother thing and that's not done anywhere else in America, but New Orleans. But mm -hmm. the one thing I also wanted to, before Jahan asked me that question, I wanted to piggyback on something that Isaac said, where you said, you know, it's part of, part of it is, part of religion is adopted to people's belief systems. I think that is true, but I think we also have to take a situation when we're speaking about black culture and black music situations. And I think the spirituality and religion, because I think I was specifically speaking about religion and connecting it to belief systems, is our situation, not belief system, but our situation is kind of dictated our connection to religion here in America. And I think that plays through in our music where a lot of other cultures mm -hmm. find some sense of salvation through religion, through the practice of religion, and they incorporate that in their music. For us, it's about freedom and emancipation also. Mm -hmm. Because how mm -hmm. we were introduced to the mm -hmm. religion here in America, which is basically Christianity, it was about survival. And, you know, we, we bought with us some form of religion, but just like our language was taken away from, our names were taken away from it, so was a lot of our spirit and disconnect to the religions and the mm -hmm. belief systems that we had coming over here from where we came from, from the various parts of the world we came from to America. But we were able to find a source of camaraderie and faith right. in religion here. Right. So our indoctrination of religion and spirituality in music is different than anybody else, especially in America, because it's connected to survival right. and nobody else's is. I agree. Like with everything Scoop said. And in fact, I think that the stuff that you were saying about New Orleans, I think it joins to it, it joins to what you said in the way that mm -hmm. the experience um, in America, you can't really separate stuff like spirituality from blues, for example. No. You can't like, it's like, it's not, I don't even want to use the word duality. These are basically two sides that form the, the entire experience in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Du Bois talked about it, so you can use the word. <laughs> I think it's, you know, not, not to jump too far ahead, because Arthur, I know you want to get us on track, but just to piggyback on something both you guys are talking about, um, the three of you guys are talking about the idea of particularly Christianity and, you know, that survival that Scoop was talking about and that desire to be free. Um, if you look at the, the impact of that on music, modern, you know, and when I say modern, I'm talking about black music going back, you know, probably a century. Um, modern black music and then you look at what happened with hip-hop and the influence of Islam on hip-hop mm -hmm. where here we have a different sort of spirituality in the sense that you same you know it's, it's spiritual it's religion but the I think the foundation of that was not built around the someday we'll be free thing that you know that that a lot of people viewed Christianity as it was about more so we got to get free right now and that became a for, for people of my generation 
that became a very enticing thing about not only hip hop, but, e- but even about Islam um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and that that was a different sort of spirituality. And but it had the to, to I guess to feed the point that we're all making. It was a very it was very clear to see the impact that religion had on music in those instances. So yeah. so just to be clear from my original question, you can be you can be entirely spiritual in music without referring to spirituality, right? Yes, I think so. Agreed. I do too. John Coltrane's "The Love Supreme" is an extreme. Is a perfect example of that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can you can hear you can hear that. I mean, he's a great example to bring up. But "A Love Supreme" is about God. Yes. And and a lot of his work around then, like after that kind of 1964 point, ascension on meditations, right? Um, selflessness. Mm-hmm. They are they are specifically about God, and he was. He was obsessed with religion, you know. He not just yes. not just um, Christianity, actually, but um, the Bhagavad Gita, no. um, Buddhism, uh, Islam. He was, mm-hmm. in fact, his first wife Naima was um, uh, was Muslim. Where I think you're right is that um, he had a conversation with Naima after he'd recorded a Love Supreme, and she says that he told her, "90 percent of my music from now on will be prayer." Mm. Mm-hmm. His whole concept was at that point, ninety percent of my stuff is a meditation through um, through which I'm going to be praising mm-hmm. God, whether whether it's mm-hmm. apparent immediately apparent or not. Mm-hmm. But without without him claiming uh, um, to be a, a, a Muslim or a Christian or a Buddhist, he Coltrane channeled his spirituality. His, he channeled his devotion through his skill set. Absolutely, and in fact, he proclaimed himself to be a universalist. He, you mm-hmm. know, he said, "I'm not, mm-hmm. and I'm he not wasn't... any religion. You know, I, re- I love all religions." Is he, he's he's on record as saying. And to Arthur's point, you can sense that you can sense that through listening to the music. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't have to. You don't have to say the word God. You don't have to say the word Jesus. You don't have to speak. You know, to any certain apostle or, you know, cite chapters, you know, or verses. You don't have to do any of that. You can feel, for lack of a better word, when an artist feels that God is in the room with them. Or when they bring sure. God into mm-hmm. the room with them. You can feel it through what they're delivering to us. Yeah, you know, I think a better example of it is someone like Aretha. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where she could be singing about heartbreak. Yes or passion like lyrically it's very specific she's singing about romance or you know either side of romance but her delivery was sanctified that's the point i think we have to make is that when you talk about one thing i think and you guys correct me if i'm wrong but i think one thing that we can definitely attribute to black american music in regards to spirituality spirituality and religion is that black american music took it was the first to take god into the bedroom or better even more to the point to argue that god has always been in the bedroom mm-hmm. well how do you mean by that i mean do you well, mean you t- like for example to, ray you, charles no well, being, i'm not a ray i'm not i'm not i'm not a ray charles expert but you listen to you're talking jodeci Arthur, jodeci no. okay. <laughs> well i mean not that Before you have to be a ray charles expert but what i mean to say is that i remember well, let me, ray, let me, ray let me, charles let me, hold on let me make this point first and then because i may answer your question let me make this point first if you listen to let's get it on that's as much a church spiritual song as it is a love sex song you know, he's he gets to the point where he basically says Jesus wants us to, you know, to, to get it on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know of any. It's not for me. <laughs> right. Do it for the church, girl. 
but I, I think that there's many examples of that across, you know, particularly I'm, I'm guessing it, pro- it really emerged in the 50s, 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, but there's many examples of that where the sanctified or the spiritual um, became the sensual. And I don't think again, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you can attribute that to anyone, anyone else except for black American music. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. You're right. And you see that unity like in so many different aspects of black music whether it's a unity between styles or, as you're saying, the concepts you're describing now, it's, everything is often so blended in that way. It's in the, it's in the groove. Yeah. It's in the groove. Yeah. I'm using the word groove usually. It's in the groove. But, but I think, though, Jay, and I know that you're, you're somewhat of a universalist when it comes to black American music, but <laughs> I think that there are very... You, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. You know, it's like you can take any given song from the catalog and say, OK, it has elements of this, this and this in it, even if it's really, really buried deep, deep, deep down in there. But I do think there are, you know, that's kind of like part and parcel. That's just part of, you know, being a musician or a black American musician. But in all the influences that, you know, you hear and come out through your music, whether you want them to or not. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, the explicit overtones of, you know, certain music is like this ain't about God. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is about this or this is about that. I think you have to take those into account sometimes, especially when it hits you a certain way. Yeah, you. you know, it's like, yeah, I, I think that has to be taken into account. Well, it's just certain things, just certain times. Like, I listened to Dead Wrong the other day, you know, Biggie and Eminem. That shit ain't about right. God. No, no, of course. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. he, he may be mm-hmm. somewhere deep, deep down in there, <laughs> but it's, it may be more about the devil if we talk about Christianity. It may be more about the, but. <laughs> is it where when it is there when it is in the room is it because train aretha marty waters denise lasalle bb king donny bobby bland all these guys their first musical experiences were via the church their tuition was via the church their learning their pedagogy it was all via the church yeah and that's going to get in you you can't escape it then you're not going to be able to or it's going to be harder to deliver music that's free of that sensibility if you've been there for 10, 15 years. But I think that's the thing, Jahan. How long, you know, what role does the church play in your everyday life? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to not to bring back the Coltrane situation, but when it does, whether you've not been in, I mean, we don't know, I don't know Coltrane's history with the church prior to him, you know, reintroducing himself to the church mm-hmm. after his, you know, salvation from drugs, mm-hmm. you know, but apparently whether he had never been a lot it played a role in his life at that time yeah so he didn't have to go to church 15 10 15 years in his prior life to have that play a role in it and it's just a matter of as an artist what role yeah you could have gone 15 20 years but it may not mean anything to you right now by the time you become an artist biggie could have been raised in the church and but it's out of what you come into the room with that 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 is going to extend itself to what we feel you know when you do produce this music because it's still to me is rooted in fear what we feel when we hear it and we feel if you if, if you treat your music the way it's supposed to be treated like the art form that it is like it is an extension of you and a lot of artists don't do that a lot of artists don't make their music make their music an extension of them but if you do do that and god is in the room with you and, and your spirit and spirituality is in the room with you then we as the consumer of your art should be able to feel that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I hear you, but mm-hmm. for Train, both his grandfathers were, were ministers right. in North Carolina where he grew up. Um, yeah. So he, you know, he had that experience. Um, but really what I'm talking about, bro, is when you're exposed to something for a long time, like whatever you study, whatever you learn, that, that 
gets in you. You know, if you read a certain type of book, that expands your vocabulary. If you have a certain type of relationship, that's what you've that's what you've experienced and that will inform many of your other relationships. It's the same thing with music. If you're exposed to a certain musical language for 10 or 15 years, then that becomes your center and you can mm-hmm. you can study many different styles and you can become a master of all trades. But what brought you up and what you rely on yeah, is but always I- going to be in you as your center. Here's the here's the how uh, we have to take consideration the pull of the other side, and I don't want to like put success in the hands of the devil. But if you know, art is still about resonating with the greatest amount of people for most artists. So mm-hmm. if you if if you do something where the spirit may not be in the room with you in that, and that becomes popular, you know, and people gravitate towards that, and it pulls you away. From that being your normal art, there are there we could go through hundreds of artists who have come in with wanting to be connected to some religion, mm-hmm. some spirituality, to the church. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to their art, to their music, but, yeah, but that's not what connected with other people. So they got pulled further and further away from that, and that pulled them further, and further away from their art being spiritually connected. So we have to keep that in consideration for what the artist wants to do and what pulls them away from that, because that you know. Because you mentioned Aretha. Whitney Houston is a classic example of that, too. Of somebody who got mm-hmm. strictly pulled away. You know, and not that Whitney did anything that was demonic or, you know, sacrilegious or anything. But she got further and further pulled away from the church in what she was doing when it came to her art. Yeah, but did Whitney's style change? Like, I'm not talking about the lyrics or the style of production. I'm talking about her voice and the way she used it and the way she approached singing. Like, you know, everything from her cadence, her riffs... Her technique, etc., wasn't it still grounded in that style? Even if it's yeah, it no, it's totally different. It's a totally different feel. I, 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 yeah, I would argue against that though, Scoop, because when I hear uh, "I Will Always Love You," I'm in church at by the end of that song. Setting aside this particular example, you look at Aretha, you look at Jodeci, or any one of New Jack Swing artists from the '90s. Their style of vocals is clearly influenced by gospel right i mean it's i just i don't know how there's any getting around See, it's it interesting because you, mm-hmm. you, can, you can change it you can adapt it but i don't think you can get too far away from what's ingrained in you no i know and i know i'm not conscious i'm saying i wish I, i'm not contradicting you i believe what you're saying i'm saying the opposite i think has happened i think that's a challenge i just want to bring up the challenge that a lot of artists are up against that even you know there is an other side to this and just like any religion there's another side just as there's god there's apparently the devil mm-hmm. you know and i'm just saying a lot of artists get pulled away i think musically and vocally from where their original roots are if their original roots happen to be quote yeah, unquote I, the church i agree because of the I, because so, you know the pull of the industry the pull of popularity you're being yeah, pulled away from this right yeah now, that's all in both i mean in, 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 in both of the views that you have the church is at the center in the early part of the 20th century, there were really two places that an artist could perform in front of people. It was either the church on Sundays or it was the speakeasies or the nightclubs or the juke joints on Friday and Saturday nights. And I was interjecting Ray Charles a little earlier saying that he was one of the first artists who took church cadence musical cadence into popular musical forms and he received a backlash from that 
because it was always at a time there was always a situation that if you if you were singing in church you were using your god-given talent for for his work if you weren't singing in the church you were robbing god and you were serving the devil because these places were, were of debauchery you know, where where this was where you were where you were taking your talents. But as Scoop was pointing out, these were the places where you would get a wider audience. The church was very scoped. Zora Neale Hurston she wrote a couple of essays on that in the twenties on exactly that that division. Okay, so without the church as an incubator, do we lose musicality from our present artists, not just vocalists but instrumentalists as well? Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's any doubt of that, yeah. and I don't. I'm not saying that exactly. you have to that music or that church can be the only incubator. We've also lost, you know, like you said, the juke joints and the, all those other places. Them places are gone too, and music programs in school. Live music still exists, exactly. but more so in jazz and more so for established artists. But for you know, there's we talked about it on the show before. There's no you know neighborhood bands. You know, kids aren't getting together and forming bands. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, when you when we used to go to church as kids, you know, you would look up to the pulpit and you look to the left or the right and you would see not only people singing you would see a band you know that was where the music was coming from was right. from a, a band so just the right. visual of seeing that that was how music was created you know it's right there those people with instruments they're making the music that's you know if you're not going to church you're not seeing that and i'm i'm fairly certain i, I should have looked it up before the show the stats but just within um baptist black baptist churches Methodist, whatever the you know the number of members the membership numbers have been dwindling for years mm-hmm. and particularly among you know men and kids you know teenagers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so you know you go into a lot of these churches and you see mostly women and mostly older women um and then you see you know there may be a band there you know there may be a couple kids in the band but you know yeah going to church and seeing that if you were a musician that was for many to Jay, to Jay's point early on. That was the first introduction to live music. Um, so without that, I think there's a direct correlation to that. And what we have now, where live instrumentation, how many kids are walking around now talking about they're musicians and don't know how to play an instrument? You know, that's commonplace. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, to answer your question, Arthur, losing that incubator is, I think, is very apparent in what we, you know, the, the music of today. Whether you love it or or, dis, or hate it, it's very apparent. But I also think that we have to say we've lost a lot of other incubators um, as well. But since this show is about God, That's, you know, I'm focused on the church. The church has always been an incubator for not only uh, vocalists and, and singing in choir, but Isaac made a great point. And I don't even think he realized he made it when he said there are usually bands there and kids in the band. He's right. If you really go to, especially back in the day, church bands were usually kids. Mm-hmm. That's where kids, especially drummers, when you lose that, you've lost the essence of everything because they start at such a young age mm-hmm. and they don't take mm-hmm. that out to the world with them. So when you're, when, when, when you're trying to ditch, when you're out to not have to attend Sunday school is to be able to play in the church band, be able to play the drums in the church band, mm-hmm. that becomes your part of your life because you don't want to do Sunday school. Mm-hmm. So you learn how to play the drums at 10 years old and you're in that church band until you graduate high school, sometimes even through there. So you've been playing those drums for eight, 10 you know years and that's becomes a part of your life Mm -hmm. and now that that has kind of been removed it's affected all the music that we a lot of i don't say all of it but a lot of music we listen to in the black community Mm -hmm. not only because of that but because 
you know, nobody's programming beats for the choir to sing in church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the, the the loss of the loss of live music and instrumentation in the church right now, especially since the bands are usually well, they usually skew so young. With that being gone, there's it, it, I think it's affecting like maybe probably the third we're on a third generation of having that void play itself out in what we consider contemporary black music to right now i may be stretching it but i think we're probably in the third generation of that having a great impact on the music we're listening to right now and mm-hmm. i think you know really quickly i think you can also taking this out of christianity and looking at islam if you look at the lack of if you look at islam's like we talked about before influence on hip-hop in the say 90s versus its influence on hip-hop now there's a correlation there as well between the lack of I don't want to say anger to I don't want to associate Islam with anger, but the lack of, uh, let's just say, proactivism <laughs> within the music. You know, there's a lack of that. And I, it's, it's, it's funny because Kendrick is probably the best example of, even though he's a Christian, he's the best example of that energy that you had when in Islam had a much bigger impact on hip hop or influence on hip hop. And now right. if you just if you take that, that if you take uh the Islamic faith out of hip hop to a certain degree, you have what we have right now, and I'm not. That's a whole different show. But I'm Isaac, not gonna get that, it. No, but no, it's not really. It's not really because it goes to the point I was making earlier about the devil pulling away where you originally come from. When that became not popular, when Brand Nubian, Karis One, mm-hmm. Rakim, yeah. Poor Righteous Teacher, with all the stuff they were doing that was centered around Islam, became not popular. And like, hey man, this West Coast stuff, this Dre and Snoop stuff, that's the thing, you know. All this stuff became unpopular, artists started leaning that way. That's the exact right. same thing I was just talking about earlier, about in music, how the industry can pull you away from what your spirituality is and you hear it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was talking about. There's, hearing you guys talk is making me think about just how much, you know, you take the black church or the black mosque or whatever you want to have, and you, it's in the community. And then you have all this culture that comes into those places because mm-hmm. regard because, you know, the church spirituality and religion is sometimes regarded as its own kingdom. You know, and it's like whoever you are, whatever you got on your mind, you come in here and then we we kind of tell you how to look at things. You know, we, we we shape you basically. But as human beings, that's you. We know that's not true. No matter what you where you at, whether it's church, work, um, social activities, whatever you bringing your culture into that that situation. And which is why religions, ancient religions before, um, you know, the big three, before Christianity, before Islam, before uh, Judaism, before Buddha, whatever, those religions were based on environment. So it's like if you if you lived amongst in the desert, if that's where your tribe of 100 or 250 people lived at, then your gods were associated with sand, probably. You know what I'm saying? If you lived in mm-hmm. uh, uh, rainforest, your gods were probably associated with trees and things of that nature because we our environment shapes us and that's how we view the world. So hearing you guys talk, it just it just really is really making me understand how the lack of that for for lack of a better term, the middleman of spirituality or church or whatever, not having that, there's almost a cutoff between culture and then music. You know, you got culture and the music on either side and you have this incubator in the middle. But when that incubator is gone, that culture is like it can't find its way to the music anymore you know and it's like that it makes you understand how valuable those 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 um incubators were um but i want to push back on something that i think all three of you are saying which is like there's direct influence where 
you're immersed in a culture, in person, face to face, and you have someone teaching you the music directly. And then there's indirect, where you may listen to people who've gone through that process, mm-hmm. but gone through that process very well. And if you immerse yourself in the listening there, it can still become you. DNA. So I think, and I think that explains why you have so many people from other cultures mm-hmm. all around the world mm-hmm. who still mm-hmm. make Black American music. Mm-hmm. And even someone like, I mean, D'Angelo is a very bad example for this because he is someone who did grow up in the church, mm-hmm. but. Notwithstanding that, you can still hear that. I, I would suggest you could still hear that Hawkins family is still quite mm-hmm. influential on his music. So you know, that direct, total immersion is only one way to get it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I would just, I would just say, it's, I would just say it's a matter of degrees, though. I think it's a matter of degrees. It's like, yeah, if you if you are in that, like you said, you, you used the great word immersion. If you're immersed in it, that's different than being influenced by somebody else who was immersed in it. You know, that personal immersion is different. So, well, it depends on the person. I mean, it it also depends on how much you immerse yourself in it too. Like, um, even with the direct influence, a lot of people we're talking about are probably dragged to church by the ear by their mum. You know what? <laughs> you know what, Jay? You <laughs> almost if you was for me. <laughs> no, for me, you almost nailed it. You almost nailed it because I think the missing link is the grandma effect. Mm. I mean, I personally was not raised in the church. I didn't go to church on Sunday. The only times that I went to church was when I was with my grandmother. She respected this, so I respected this because I respected her. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Arthur. And this goes back to... I I, I think that's everybody's thing, but I want want, real quick, Isaac, I want to uh go back to John. John, you mentioned D'Angelo and influence you can hear from Hezekiah Walker, right? Hawkins family, yeah. Hawkins family, okay. Here's something interesting. Okay, I'm, this is a stretch because you made me think of something. I don't know if you got this in the UK or not, but there was a special, there was a, uh, a show done on the Clark Sisters here in America, all right? It was produced by what is two, three of the executives, Mary J. Blige, Queen Latifah, and Missy Elliott. Missy Elliott, as an executive producer on this, said her music is influenced by the Clark sisters. Where? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I'm just asking where. Like, it, or is that one of those situations where black musicians use the church for their convenience? Let's go to and our resident Missy Elliott expert, expert Jahan. <laughs> well, I don't know too much about her music, but I would say there could be an element of executive producer press release about it um, <laughs> but I would I would also say like influences can manifest in different ways and mm-hmm. you know we're all influenced by something but we may take one aspect of it or, or another aspect of it and it doesn't necessarily mean that you become a facsimile of your influences mm-hmm. and like even, even the way we listen to music you know we listen in different ways um you know, we could hear the same track, and I could be drawn to the harmony. And but here, but here's two different things. Be, yeah, right, I right. got you. You could be drawn to the drums, mm-hmm. and you know, we we may just be influenced by different things, even in the same thing. Right. So it might, you know, it might be a little unfair to judge, but um, but yeah, like she she may have heard that music, and she may have taken an aspect of it, um, a concept from it, or um, even just a, even just how it resonated with her you know it's it's hard to say 
Yeah, I, I don't I think you. I didn't mean to pose a question. I was, I was, I was just throwing it out there, kind of to everybody. I directed it to you because you made the connection with House of Skywalker, and I thought that was appropriate. So I wasn't necessarily asking you specifically for an answer. I was kind of throwing that out to anybody. Does anybody hear that, or was it just convenient <laughs> to do that? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, and I don't, I'm not of the mind. I'm like Jay. I don't think the when something is redolent of something else, I don't think it has to be like you know right in your face. And sometimes that can be annoying too when it is right in your face. But I don't, as far as Missy, I don't know. But let me let me do this really quickly, this one last point, because we brought it to this conversation about the removal of, you know, these institutions or, you know, not the removal, but the lack of attendance at these institutions and how that's impacted things. I agree. I agree with Jay 100 percent as far as um, you can be influenced by something, even if, you know, you can be influenced by the church, even if you didn't go to church. You know, you can just hear other people who have been influenced and hear their music. But just just I think it has to be said, though. Anyone who has ever experienced that shit, you know, been in a church when it gets really, especially, <laughs> listen, <laughs> y'all know anybody who's ever experienced it when a church is rocking and it's like, you cannot compare that. That does not compare to hearing it on a record or hearing somebody else. It doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare. And this is coming from somebody. I'm not a Christian. This comes from somebody who was like Arthur said, I was dragged, you know, and I, right. I right. enjoyed the music and sometimes right. I even enjoyed the sermons because it was just that energy, you know, and it was that that, that right. fire. Um, but yeah, that that experience can't be duplicated. You know, it's a it's a very singular thing and it's it's moving. Even I as a, you know, 10 year old kid was moved, you know, because right. it is very moving. Those those experiences when the, when the Holy Ghost is there and the church is rocking and the band is just for the right. you know, the pastor turns around, and he keeps the band going and they start the vamp all over again. Right. Come on, man. And that choir is like a freight train. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't duplicate yeah. that. But it's a feel. And that goes with what we were saying earlier. It's, it's, it's a feel and you feel it. And a lot of times you don't, people claim it, but you can't feel it in their art. But sometimes you can. And as much as Isaac, you're, you're 200% right. You can't replicate it, but you can still feel it. You just used the most important word in this whole discussion. Feel. And that's mm-hmm. twofold. Yeah, mm-hmm. I said it right? earlier. That's twofold. Thank that's you. the emotional feel. And then also the rhythmic feel. Exactly. Like you can't, for me, you can't really talk about black music or at least the kind of black music that we all always talk about. You can't talk about that mm-hmm. without talking about feel. But tell me, like, when, when did this all change? Like, when did this aspect start to become less obvious or less present? I think less obvious is the key word. Yeah. I mean, for, I, I guess for my ears, for my ears, early 90s. Because I think that that with the advent of I'm about to make it Puffy's fault, but with the advent <laughs> of 80s loops, don't you got a T-shirt that says that? It's because Puffy, after <laughs> where where New Jack Swing, where that drops off, and going into the early 90s, where you had the advent of Bad Boy taking 80s loops and making that the foundation of their songs, that was where. I think it was all but erased completely because no, it was I think all late, about. I think late nineties, though, right? Not early nineties, right? I, I I actually think the fall off, you know, the the clearer line is late nineties, early two thousands. Once R. Kelly's reign was over, I think that was it. I really do. I don't know, man, because like I, I'm talking about on the main. I'm talking about on the, in the. I mean, there's always we could point, we could find an artist now that still has it, but I'm saying. No, I think I think it goes before Puffy. I think. To me, in really thinking about it, now that Jahan asked that question, I really think it's the introduction of the 808 drum machine to music mm-hmm. that really 
was the direct. If you want, like John asked for a point. Mm-hmm. I think once that became prominent in black music, that's where you can literally start to see and hear. I'm sorry, because you're dealing with uh, music right now. You can hear a change in black music from that because because of the heaviness of it, because of the the, the anger that sometimes that's rooted around music when it's when when it's placed from an 808. Mm-hmm. You can see the church leaving and not being connected with that music, and it became so prominent in all music. And to me, if I'm going back, and I'm I'm just doing this off the top of my head. When you started hearing the 808, I'm talking about everything from, I'm not, you know, Malcolm McLaren uh-huh. to all the stuff Rick Rubin and them were doing at Def Jam, all that stuff. You know, and I'm not saying it's just hip hop in general. I'm talking about just that machine, mm-hmm. the 808. That's when I think you could pinpoint a shift starting to happen in black music. And Jahan but, asked for a specific shift. For me, I, that that's what I can point to. But I don't know, Scoop, because I and and and. Jahan could correct me on what drum machine uh, Flight Time used, but I mean SOS Band was was built off a drum machine. Sherelle was built off of a drum machine. Alexander O'Neill, Hearsay, excellent album, built off of a drum machine. But you still had Church. Mm. So oh, I don't, no, no, I don't no. think Listen, it's that. I'm not saying. Okay, well, I'm not saying that it can't be included in that, but you can't uh-huh. tell me uh-huh. that. All the music that was done through the indoctrination of that instrument mm-hmm. is online with all the people that you just said. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I just mentioned two people, Malcolm McLuhan and Rick Rubin. You're going to tell me that their use and the only reason they exist in our conversations in black music is because of this machine. Mm-hmm. That their music is in line with what they were doing. No, that was the way that Jimmy and Terry happened to use the machine. Are you mm-hmm. saying, are you saying, Scoop, that it's like if we were... Are you telling me that Fly Girl by the Boogie Boys and you ain't fresh? Well, okay, first of all, Fly Come Girl, on, that's Arthur? church. <laughs> <laughs> that was church to me. Nah, that, that was church because of women. It had right. nothing to do with the sound, dude. But Scoop, are you saying, are you saying that if we were like, if we were like um, anthropologists, archaeologists going back and we were retracing this comment you know rechasing like to, to answer john's question we were doing a retrace from 2020 and going back are you saying that eventually we would get to the drum machine and even though there was albums that came after the drum machine that used the drum machine and still reflected church or spirituality in the groove that that would be the you know we would trace it all the way back sh- to the drum machine and be like okay si- you, here you was the genesis to not to john's point you would sense a shift Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Okay, I mean, I'm not I saying it like that. totally was devoid of everything. I said, where did Jahan's question? I thought was where did you notice? Where do you think the change? And I'm like, there. That machine provided a beginning of a shift. And you all were talking about puffing. I said, my thing is that I think it started before that. That's all. Mm-hmm. I do. Jahan was talking musically, and I'm like, here's the thing. I think musically, it started to change it. And you can basically pinpoint where a shift was happening mm-hmm. right there with that machine and indoctrinating because that machine it changed the feel. I get your point because it changed yes. the feel. And it goes back to the feel. It changed the feel. I said it from the beginning, the feel. But look, let me ask this question because because I want to bring this I want to bring this to 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 today. A few years ago, Chance the Rapper released his third mixtape coloring book. Well, you know what? Let me go even back further. You know, uh Kanye on his first album, College Dropout, had a song called Jesus Walks. And that was probably the beginning of this resurgence of integrating uh, gospel themes 
gospel musical themes in hip hop. Coloring Book extended that. Blessings, all we got, how great. Um, and now Kanye's last album, uh, Jesus is King, and also um, his Sunday services that he's been putting on and a Sunday service album. What, oh, Jay Electronica finally put out an album. Depending on how you look at it, it's Jay-Z featuring Jay Electronica or Jay Electronica featuring Jay-Z. Um, is bringing back to the forefront or attempting to bring back to the forefront spiritual themes with hip hop as the vehicle. I can't think of a better word than to say legitimacy. I mean, is this a legitimate movement or is this a gimmick? Is this, let's do something different. Right. I, I answer your question with a question. How, back to the word that Jahan said is the center of all this. How does it feel to you? To answer your question, Arthur, how does it feel? It feels, it feels gimmicky. Thank you. Okay. Chant. Jahan, how does it feel to you? Yeah, it's all, it's, I don't know if I can answer that as easily. I mean, it's going to be different for different people. If you listen to Jay Electronica's work, um, what little there is of it, he's been on that vibe <laughs> for a while lyrically. Like, he's pulled from these sources consistently. And um, I, so I, I don't think it's a gimmick. Chance seems to have stuck with it. You know, it seems to pervade his work. I don't think it's something that he, I don't think it's a coat that he puts on and takes off. Kanye, you know, who can really speak to that? Who mm -hmm. really knows what he's thinking on a day-to-day -day basis? But mm -hmm. so I, I don't, I don't think you can answer that. The jury's out. But I think it depends on the person. I will say I, I don't think it's at the forefront of most label executives' minds or or music marketers that you know let's do a religious album. It will be a money spinner. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case. let's rap about God. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. that'll hit um, un unless that's what you do. Um, you know, like Lecrae or somebody like that. But Jay, to what you Jay, to what you said earlier, you know, what you talked about earlier about I guess we all talked about about God being in the groove. I think with Kanye's first album, that was very authentic musically. You know, I agree with to that. where where he yeah. was, you know, for yeah, there was a lot of spirituality that. in that music. Um yeah, I think that you know, I've coloring book, I I I haven't listened to coloring book in a long time. Um, but I think that so I don't want to talk negatively about it, but I, I do think that you know, bringing God into the music is definitely more about is not just about the lyrics, you know what I'm saying? I would argue that if your lyrics are quote unquote spiritual and your music is not, then there's a certain degree of, I, I could see somebody looking at it as gimmicky, you know what I'm saying? Even if it's not gimmicky, even, even if that wasn't your intention. Um, I think that it's much more, it feels much more pure to me when both are there or at least, at least music, you know, if it's just the instrumental um, that God is in that groove then it feels much more um, authentic to me, to me, especially when you're talking about a rapper producer like Kanye, he's doing the music as well. Um, mm -hmm. So he's bringing in, if you're, if you're a lyricist and you're choosing who you're working with musically, you're obviously going to look for beats. If you're trying to put your spirituality into it, you're going to look for beats that speak to that spirituality. So if that's not there, then I guess that's when I would question it. But I haven't listened to, what's this, the Jesus is King. I haven't listened. I, I actually have not listened to that album, but um, his Kanye's first album, yeah, it, it, there was no question. Yeah, I would about agree with that. There's that, that connection between the two. Yeah, there was lyrically and musically, yeah. God was all up in that yep. piece. Um, my point is that it feels convenient. I don't want to go as far mm. as to say it feels gimmicky, but it does feel very convenient. Gonna let me take that and bullet scoop. I don't scoop. know if that's to say it feels. 
Yeah, I mean, no, 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 Take no, no. You, could, you know, I mean, but but I'm I'm listening to what Jahan says, and Jahan spread it across the board and associated a different feeling to a different artist. So he didn't give a universal answer. It's easy yeah. to give a universal answer and say it all feels gimmicky. So I'm taking a page from Jahan after listening to him. If I it's, it feels convenient to me, um, and you know, and and it serves its purpose for each artist, but it does. There is an authenticity to the feel of the music, but I don't want to go so far as it feels gimmicky across the board, but there is a sense, and we're still rooted in this whole feel of what spirituality is musically, it does feel convenient for everybody that seems to be using, you know, uh, spirituality and God and pushing that to the forefront of what they're doing with their art right now musically. It could also be scoop. It could also be that thing where some of these artists are looking back at their forefathers and foremothers mm-hmm. and saying, I want to be like Aretha. I want to be like Marvin. I want to have that spiritual sanctity in my music. But then to your point, there's an inauthenticity there because they really don't understand it. You know what I'm saying? Okay, they don't, they don't get it. And it's yeah, like, I would, it, I would apply that to, I would apply that to chance. Coloring book does feel like that. Like it's a, like it's a, a trying, you know, making that connection. Right, and you have to, you know, you have to, and that's, you know, we're, we're talking about religion, but I guess you could apply this to many things. But yeah, it's not just about admiring someone and wanting to put that in your art. You have to put, you, you have to live your own thing and put that in your art. You know, and if it's not, right, if it's not spirituality, then don't put it in there. But if it is, you know, you have to find it and put it in there without just emulating someone else. You make a great point, and I know they went through two different situations, but Kanye's music rooted purposely rooted in God feels different than Coltrane's music when it was rooted in God. When mm-hmm. he went through his thing and came on the other side, you felt it. Kanye's, I don't think you feel the same thing. Mm. And that's not, that's not, I, I know you're not saying this, that's not about the difference in idiom no, it's between not. the styles. Nope, I mean, not at all, not at all. Like Kendrick's work, To Pimp a Butterfly, there's no doubt. No, there's right. no doubt. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the style of work. It's what, to the point, John, is it's what you feel coming yeah. from the art and the artist at that time. I agree. Roundtable. The greatest summer ever. Uh, summertime is traditionally big for music. And the albums and songs uh, released in the summer, uh, they cement memories for listeners. And they cement careers for artists. Considering everything that the world is going through right now, <laughs> music... Music may be more important than ever uh, this summer. Is there something going Um, on right now? (laughs) Um, But to celebrate the tradition of great summertime music, uh, we're going to go around the table and ask each snob to name the artists who they think had the greatest summer ever. Uh, I want all of us to name the year, the artist, and the album album or song that allowed that artist uh, to own the summer. So, I guess I'll go first because I don't think I've gone first uh, in quite a while. So, my pick, 1984, Prince, When Doves Cry, Whew, is my pick. Ooh, you said 1980. I thought you was about to grab mine. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. You know, and I really believe this because a, a, a lot of people look at the turning point of, of, Prince and his, you know, hot rise to stardom as being the Purple Rain album and movie. More so the movie than the album, but, you know, Purple Rain. Um, mm-hmm. 
I classify it as before When Doves Cry and after When Doves Cry. So When Doves Cry was released in May of 84. And um, the album and the film Purple Rain came out in June. So there were some weeks for people to be able to hear this new Prince music. And two key things about it. Um, the, one, the song itself, but two, what it really meant in the time frame that we're talking about. If you knew nothing about Prince, if you were just a casual music listener or you were, you know, interested in music and but you weren't necessarily, you know, super crazy about Prince or a big fan, you knew Little Red Corvette. It was played on MTV. It was a pop song, you know, and inspired uh, Stand Back by Stevie Nicks. The next opportunity that you would have heard Prince on the radio, it would have been When Doves Cry. And that is a very different brand of, of, of a Prince song. Prince fans were familiar with that, uh, what I like to call, you know, mad scientist in the lab Prince, the automatic, the some, something in the water. But pop audiences did not know what this was. What made it different is what actually is now quite common. You know, an in, in, in R&B lean to a hip-hop laced track. <laughs> and there was, no, there was no addition of bass guitar. And that at the time was revolutionary, but many people were weirded out by that. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work without some sort of bass line to provide, you know, the the groove to take you you know through this song um but because of the movie coming out and because prince had already been uh established as an mtv video artist the video when doves cry was a vehicle for the movie that you know was coming out a few weeks later and that also added to this um um well this anticipation isaac likes to call it zeitgeist I mean, that song, that song was inescapable. You know, there's no question about it. That song was literally inescapable. It was on the radio every three to every, it would end on one station and start on another. And, you know, this is if you didn't know him before then, you knew him then. But I think for those of us who knew him, the sound was so out of left field that it wasn't just like, this is a great song. This sounds like some weird nothing I've ever heard. And I love it. You know, so. But yeah, that summer, I remember that summer vividly in my mind. It was like that. And the, the fact that the video, didn't the video, when it came out, it immediately contained clips of the movie, right? Or did they put the clips in later? No, no. It, it at first contained clips of the movie. That's, that's right. what so you... the, the the fervor, the hysteria was built up, you know, very, it was a slow build from there to the opening of the movie. And I think, I don't know how, how I don't know how early that song or was how early the video was dropped before the movie but as a kid of that age who had you know i had to i told the story before i had to you know make a deal with my father to take me to go see the movie because i was too young to go see it by myself um that i saw it much later than when it opened so i was watching the video for a Mm -hmm. long time just to get those clips of the movie because it was going to be a while before i could go um so yeah that that song was that dominated the summer literally um it, it turned out to be the biggest single the biggest selling single of 1984 so you know i'm the resident prince guy but this isn't a prince guy pick this is who held the summer for of of of, of 1984 and it was 
indisputably Prince. But ironically, um, as many times as I've seen Prince live, from the Purple Rain tour, which was my first Prince concert, to, um, uh, well, I was fortunate to see him during the piano um, and microphone tour before he passed, but all the times in between with different variations of musicians as part of his band, when Doves Cry never sounded right to me live. It just never sounded good to me live. I know what you mean. <laughs> and I know what you mean. Yeah, and I mean, I have bootlegs, you know, from the Parade Tour, from, from Sign of the Times Tour over in Europe, from the Love Sexy Tour, from Diamonds and Pearls, and, and, and Jam of the Year, and uh, even the Musicology Tour. It's like, dude, never could get it right for me. Maybe sounds a little hollow. Yeah, it sounds hollow. And, you know, I wonder and, if, like, some tracks are works of art in terms of production, but they don't necessarily translate live. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by artworks of production is that they utilize the studio in a masterful, masterful way. But the studio and the concert stage yeah. are two different things. There's, there's yeah. something about that track, and a lot of his tracks, but that track certainly, mm. everything feels real close to paraphrase Radiohead everything is in its right place Mm -hmm. on the stage without that same mix Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything sounds a lot more open Um, and I'm sort of expecting a kind of bigger or or denser vibe I wonder if part of it comes down to the keyboard thank you and I'm not talking about the solo that he uses I'm talking about that main the main line rhythmic line yeah like what is it DX7 and I think that he suspected that, or at least he recognized it, because um, I know Love Sexy, but I think as early as the Parade Tour, he subbed out keyboard for that lead line with uh, Eric Leeds on saxophone and Atlanta Bliss on trumpet. He had the horns take care of, take care of that line. Still didn't work. <laughs> but I'll say this, though. I mean, it, the song holds up very, very very well I, I i can't even think to begin to count how many times i've heard the song i don't generally rank Prince songs but it, it it's undoubtedly one of my favorite it was successful at the time right as a single oh it was the biggest selling single of 1984 i mean it was the number one song of 1984 not just the summer right the whole song year of 84 wow okay right right I know Billboard has different charts. It has like the right, they got a obviously gang the Hot One Hundred. They got a gang. Yep, uh, the black chart, uh-huh. and it's, it's it's got a rock chart, right? Yeah, it well, so it's got this. It's got a classic rock ch- chart, but it's got this other kind of obscurely named mainstream rock chart. And mainstream, it's like what the hell is mainstream? <laughs> right, like, what's right, the right, difference right, right. of mainstream rock than <laughs> yeah. the pop chart? And on that, like, Doves did number 31. It was, what was it on the black chart? Number one. So it was number one on the main chart, number one on the black chart. Yep. Number 31 in the rock chart. Yep. America. All right, who's next? I am next, yeah. and I really, I, I'll go next. And I, I really hope that Jay, you and uh, Scoop are going to bring some the summers from the 60s 70s 90s something because i'm about to not only am i still about to go back in the 80s with arthur i'm within a year of you arthur Mm -hmm. um 
So my 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 pick is that this this group this was from it's my pick is a song too it's not the whole album although you know the album was great too but it's this particular song and this group um, this song actually hit was released I think in the UK in the late 1984 mm-hmm. um, and hit the UK top 40 at number four in January of 1985 but it didn't come stateside I believe until early summer and it peaked. At, uh, on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, I did all this research before the show. I'm not this smart. Mm-hmm. Please don't think I'm going off the top of my head like Arthur. Um, it hit the Billboard, hit uh, the the Hot 100. It went number one there in August of 1985. So I have vague memories of hearing this song all summer. And I think the first time I heard this song was seeing the video on MTV. And it's off of Tears for Fear's second album, Songs from the Big Chair. Mm-hmm. And it is Shout. <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. This song, which, you know, just let me, first of all, I'm not a Tears for Fears expert, so I'm not about to give you all the dissertation that Arthur just gave you on Prince, because he is a Prince expert, but this song actually was not, ended up being maybe my second, maybe my third, but definitely my second favorite song from the album. My favorite song is um, Head Over Heels from that album, um, which is Mm -hmm. just, you know, a banger. I listened, as a matter of fact, a couple summers ago. Not everybody likes to rule the world. Now that's that's maybe Big that may be number two, but it switches out with shout. But okay, definitely number right. one is head over heels. And as a matter of fact, it was about two summers ago. I text Jay, and yeah. I because yeah. I had just got for some reason I got on this head over heels kick, and I was listening to it like every day, banging it, middle of the summer, loud that piano just oh. to, and just yeah. and I was texting Jay like, man, this song is just you know what I'm saying this song is just incredible, massive. Shoot. But um, I so I rediscovered it a few years ago. But anyway, back to shout. Shout I first saw on um, MTV. Didn't hear it on the radio first because I don't think they were playing it on black radio at first. Um, I just saw it on MTV. And the MTV video is, is kind of weird because it starts off, it has a very English feel. These are two English cats. It had a very English feel to it. It had like, they're on I'm, what I'm assuming is the English, Eng- the coastline of England somewhere. And they got the, you know, they're wearing the, the scarves and the way the Englishmen do. And they just, they're just walking around on this beach. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> what's going on? And then halfway through the video, I just, and again, I'm not doing this off the dome. I rewatched the video um, this morning. Halfway through the video, they head down to this basement. You know, all the musicians head down to this basement, it looks like. And they just start jamming. And then there's all these kids around. And it's just like this whole fe- festive atmosphere. And the lead singer, what's his name, Jay? Or what's his name? Oh, uh, um, Roland, Roland Orzabal. Right. Roland is like, Roland is, he's really giving it his all, you know, in, in this, in the performance when they hit the basement. Um, but, it, you know, it's a long video too. I think it's like five minutes. The song is long. The actual song is almost six minutes long. Um, but yeah, that's when I first experienced the song was on MTV. Then I think I started hearing it on the radio later in the summer and maybe I switched over to some of the pop stations and it would definitely, you know, every two, three minutes on the every five minutes on the pop station, they were playing it. Um, But it just it ruled the summer. And it was, again, just like when Doves Cry in 84, Shout was inescapable in 85. And by the time I got to listen to the album, really listen to it. Yeah, I was, you know, uh, Scoop, to your point, um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World was the I think came out after that in the u.s i think shout was the first single in the u.s um and you know everybody wants to rule the world was the had that you know john hughes vibe to it it was just like Mm. you know everybody Mm. loved that song but when i when i got to head over heels that's why i was like whoa and i think the head over heels video he was like in a library or something i haven't haven't seen that one in, in decades but that song in particular really hit me but 
Shout dominated the summer. You, it was just, it was, you couldn't dispute it. You, everywhere you went, you heard Shout, which they, they claim was somewhat of a protest song, um, a call to protest or call to get your, you know, to have your voice heard, which explains in the video why you had, you had the little kids and they had everybody involved. It was like a community thing at the end. Like, you know, we're going to represent, you know, our, our society. Um, but it was, it was, it's, it's a dope track, man. It's a really, and it starts out, you know, from, from jump from the first few seconds, like this is what it is. This is what it's going to be until we finish in six minutes. It's an anthem. That's a good pick. Good yeah, pick. That's a really good yeah. pick. That's yeah, a really good, good pick. Good one. That's a sleeper pick. I wouldn't, uh, that song and just tears for fears in general because you know like you said uh as big as shout was and shout was big everybody rules the world came out after this like yo i mean they kind of came out of nowhere and all of a sudden became this iconic group mm-hmm. you know because especially over those two songs so yeah and isaac great description of it had a john hughes feel to it i never thought about mm. it that way i know that was a great that description was, right that was that oh, was yeah. the perfect description ever that was john hughes all day john you next yeah i'll go next okay I'll, go ahead I'll go, go ahead, next. Go ahead. I'll go next. Um, it's interesting, like, neither neither of the choices so far are classically summery in their vibe. I mean, if you didn't know when they were released, if you didn't know their background, you wouldn't necessarily class them as a summer track. Like, they're not sunshiny, joyous, euphoric in that kind of way. Ominous a little bit. So, uh, I regret to inform you that I'm not going to do any better right now. John, you're not going to bring the sunshine? I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Scoop, it's up to you to save this one. So this album, it came out in summer. My artist, or actually the year, let me start there. The year is 1995. The Mm. day is August the 1st. And the artist is Raekwon the Chef. And the album is only built for Cuban links. Yes, baby! And it's got like 18 of the most winter ass songs ever recorded. Like the most Timberland, North Face, New York Yankee, Willie Hat songs like ever recorded. And yet and still, it was all we played Mm. that summer. Like Mm -hmm. to hear it from like every car, every Walkman, every boombox, it felt completely natural to listen to rainy days or verbal <laughs> intercourse or criminology and be like yo it's a hot day let's go to the let's hit the street let's go to the park and listen to Raekwon it was totally, it was totally natural if there's one track which actually encapsulates my summer memories for me of this album um, even though it actually came out as a single in September once summer had started to wane it was still on the album we had the album from from August it's uh, the track Ice Cream mm-hmm. Jay your pick your pick explains course, your pick right. explains why Cats in New York in particular wear Timberlands in the middle of the fucking summer <laughs> it's like, on the beach <laughs> on the beach <laughs> it is you know it's that same vibe right. great great pick great album but I still don't quite get how such a cold sounding album captured us in such a well i think jay there's i I think jay there's two different there's two different buckets there's those songs that sound like summer and dominate you know the summer and then there's those songs that don't have any sound related summer but still dominate because they're just that hot the first cat the first you know not to i hope this isn't scoop's pick but the first the one that dominates that first bucket in my mind is uh 
you know, summertime, obviously, you know what I'm saying? Fresh Prince mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and Jazzy Jeff. That song sounds like summer. It dominated the summer. It's like I I was here in Chicago that summer and I, I, I was, you know, visiting my godman. I'll never forget Scoop. You probably right. remember Lakeshore Drive when cats used to actually park their cars. You That's know what I'm saying? You would have like, you know, a half but, mile worth yeah. of cars parked on Lakeshore Drive. And Cass would just, you know, it was a party, you know, in the middle of the week, you know, it was just a party. And my godbrother took me over there and it was like, whoa, this is what home, home is what I do talk about in the in the song. Here it is mm-hmm. right here. But do you know, actually, uh, Isaac, that's where he wrote the song. Oh, I didn't know that. No. Will wrote the song coming to Chicago in the summer, hanging out on Lakefront on 31st Street. No, I That feeling no that you just talked about, that's what made him write the song. Wow. Yeah. That's, so you that's really crazy. connected to it because that's exactly where it came from. That's crazy. Because yeah. I, I explicitly remember my guy brother taking me over there and we were driving that when you could park. When yeah. you, I think there weren't even meters there. You could just park. And you just drive like 31st yeah, park, yeah. all the way down to probably probably in the 50s, yep. I think. And, yep. you know, just cars parked. You know, that was, that was beautiful, man. Now, see, Isaac, you just did something that validated our entire whole episode dealing with feel. <laughs> right. We <laughs> talked about how you could feel music. You just out of mm. nowhere... Said something that exactly made you feel, and that's exactly where the whole origin of the song came from. Yeah. All right, uh, Scuba Doo. All right, mine is kind of last, and it goes, Isaac, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully making you happy because I'm going back to the 70s, so I got that covered. Good. So now you ain't got to worry about the 80s and the 90s, so I'm going back to the 70s. <laughs> and I'll make it as quick as possible. And me, coming up, it used to be the Osley Brothers. The Osley Brothers owned every summer because that's when they would drop their albums. Mm-hmm. Osley Brothers have a history of like every summer, every day, drop an album, drop a. It was always, we'd wait for Osley Brothers album to drop because that would basically rule our summers. But my answer is not an Osley Brothers situation. It's actually 19, the summer of 1977. Uh-huh. And it belongs to. George Clinton and the P-Funk Mob for not just one album, but for the entire experience coming into culmination with an album and a tour. Um, the album that dropped in 77 was the live, uh, P-Funk Live. The Earth the Tour. The recordings they did in Oakland. and Right. Now, you got to understand, earlier, early like in October, George... And the crew were going on tour, and that's when word got around that they were actually landing the mothership. Mm-hmm. And we had never heard or any seen no shit like that. This motherfucker was landing <laughs> a spaceship on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, and they, and it's not like they did a lot of cities. They, you know, they they you know, it took time and money to actually get this shit done. So they weren't like doing like three days a week on tour with this. It was pretty spread out. Mm-hmm. So we were hearing these stories about this mothership. And to Ozzy's point earlier, and I think Arthur, you mentioned earlier, this is pre-internet. Right. This is damn near pre-television. <laughs> so it was really word of mouth. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, this nigga's landing a spaceship. <laughs> right. Like, I can actually go to a concert and see a spaceship land. Uh-huh. So he became mythical. Like, mythical mm-hmm. from October all throughout, you know, the year. And in, if, if your city was, if you were lucky enough to get to L.A. or Kansas City or Chicago, you know, if you could get to see it, mm-hmm. then you were dealing with a magical experience because that was something undone. What happened was he dropped the album that gave you a live album, a double disc album right. that gave you the feel of what that concert was like. Mm. 
And mm-hmm. that changed funk music forever. Not just the album being what the album was, and you're getting, you know, what the best of George Clinton and P Funk was, because we've heard them in studio. But hearing them live is what mm-hmm. they're really about. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything. So you you understood yeah. what the four hour you he put on concert for four, shit that Bruce Springsteen does now that people mm-hmm. think is a norm. George and them were doing. They started that shit. You know, from that large concert coliseum type stuff. Yeah, we're gonna be out here for five hours. So get ready. <laughs> we had never experienced that if you had not been to the concert. But that album put all of that feeling into context, so you could have it in your home. And that really, literally changed everything in my mind for black music, but definitely in funk music. Not just from the album music standpoint, but from a performance standpoint. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And to this day, it put him and and his whole mob on a level of they they reached God status then like George Clinton and, and P-Funk they were dope but that concert and that album lifted them to God status and it, it to me it changed everything it changed black music mm-hmm. it definitely changed me you know I look I know I graduated that and all I wanted for graduation was the ticket to go to LA to go see their mm-hmm. concert mm-hmm. And my family like, motherfucker, we ain't got L.A. money. <laughs> yeah, it's staying here. <laughs> go, go upstairs and listen to the album. That, that's all my dad would do. Go upstairs and listen to the album. That's the closest you're going to get to L.A. But that really, you know, it, it, that was the summer of funk, really. That was it at its epitome. And mm. if you understand mm. the power that funk music has had in black music and the history, and, and you all do, I'm not talking to anybody who doesn't know. But to see that art form reach its, you know, reach its peak. That was the peak of funk music because of the album and because of the concert. And like I said, that thing came out in May, man, and all summer long, really all year long. But that summer was just dedicated to that feel and everything. Mm-hmm. Even though it was an amazing summer, that provide that you know that rose above everything and changed a lot of people's lives in music. Mm-hmm. Like I said, from that day on, Bootsy is kind of included in that because earlier in the year, Bootsy dropped. What many consider probably one of the best overall funk albums ever, besides Mothership Connections. All the name is Boosie Baby. Right. Mm-hmm. But that summer, while you had George Clinton and them with the P Funk tour and the album to coincide with that, you had Munchies for Your Love and What's mm-hmm. the Telephone Bill playing on the background. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you add Boosie to that mix, and that summer was one of the craziest, craziest summers Whew. for one group, one artist that I've ever experienced in my life. Now, I remember that album. My sister had that album. And I remember she had the insert. There was a poster that came with that album. Yep. Hanging in her wall, bedroom. George. Yep. And it was George Clinton as as Dr. Funkenstein in a head-to-toe white fur. Yep. yep. Fur hat. And he had a rocket. He had platforms on, platform boots, mm. wearing platform boots, sitting on a throne with a rocket like a plastic rocket on his knee you had this <laughs> yeah. this this afro futuristic vision yeah black people who just i mean who just you had no idea how many people were in funkadelic none it just seemed like a none. tribe of musicians <laughs> that were all on and, the same program and that's what i said you heard about it but seeing it that was the thing four, seeing it for four yes. guitarists four guitarists I mean, four horn players, you know, you can, you can sort of understand that. But <laughs> and right. keep in mind, also the rarity. On the same stage, 
playing at the same time. Yeah, no, you're right about that. But keep in mind, black folk, black groups didn't get stadiums. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. Like 60,000 people stadium, we didn't get that a lot, man. So the, every everything connected to that, you know, it was, like you said, Arthur, we had never seen or experienced anything, everything. We had never seen or experienced anything like that. Now listen, Scoop, you win. That is, that's a hell of a pick. That's a hell of a pick. I can't, yeah, oof. Because, I mean, all of us, we all pick stuff that, you know, reminded us of an experience. Scoop's pick is an experience. It's like, it's more than just a personal thing. It's like, you're right. The mythology, the imagery, not just the music on wax, but the music in person. Yeah, man, that's oof, that's a hell of a pick. Scoop, you win also, man, because connecting it to our spirituality conversation at the beginning, I mean... Yeah, you bore witness. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, man. That's, that's dope. That's dope. And that's a full lid. The Music Snobs podcast. We are on Twitter at Total Music Snobs. Find us online at themusicsnobs.com. And we are available on all major streaming platforms. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe and review us on apple podcasts uh please follow us on spotify and we can be found in every major aggregator uh and if you know what that means you can definitely find us we'll see you next show